Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of love. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. Today we'll conclude with part two of my interview with Brian Whitney. The, one of the moderators at New Order Mormon website, as well as uh, he is currently working at the Church Historical Department. So, real quickly, you can reach us by email at realmormon at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at LDS Leadership Principles. Find this podcast on iTunes under Mormon Discussion, as well as the host site of mormondiscussion.podbean.com. Now on to part two of my interview with Brian Whitney. Is is at any point along this process do you open up to your wife and let her know exactly where things are at or were there were there conversations you had with her about uh, the way you were seeing things and, and maybe to bounce things off of her? I did, yeah. Um, I felt that I couldn't keep this from her. Um, it was important for her to know. But at the same time, it was important for her to know uh, that I was committed um, to our marriage, to her desire to be sealed uh, in the temple, to have her children uh, sealed to her, um, that I wasn't going to, to um, I wasn't going to crush her dreams and her desires, but I did want her to know that I had some pretty serious questions about things. So, yeah, I actually um, <laughs> forced her. Uh, this is this maybe I don't know if this was the right thing to do or not, but I, I rented the PBS frontline documentary, The Mormons, uh, by Helen Whitney, and uh, you know, and that's not an anti-Mormon, uh, you know, production. By, by any stretch. There's a lot of very faithful members on there. Terrell Gibbons, Richard Bushman right. uh, are all on there. Um, so I think it does a good job of, of showing the, uh, an objective history on things. But it definitely brings to light a lot of the issues, um, not all, but a lot of the issues that I've been uh, going through. And so I sat down with her, and it's a, it's a fairly extensive two-part documentary, um, and, and, you know, we talked about how it's an overwhelming amount of information to put on somebody when they come across the website like Mormon Think. Well, I think that this documentary kind of was that for her. Um, I would go through a, a section on the documentary that would talk about things like the Mountain Meadows Massacre or about uh, the, the seer stones and the hat or any of these issues, and I would pause it after the section and I would tell her, this is what I found out, this is what I've discovered, this is what concerns me, this is what bothers me. Um, this is what I don't have any answers to. And uh, as we went through this process of me going through, I guess you would say this kind of deconstruction, um, you know, of the history of the church with her, uh, she, I could see the sallowness in her face. I could see the color leave her face and I could see the, the sadness in her eyes. Uh, and at, at the end, you know, I mean, I, at one point I stopped and I said, we don't need to keep going through this if it's hurting you. And she said, no, let's let's get through it. And we did. Fortunately, the documentary ends on a fairly positive note about the desire of having families sealed together, which was her big her big hot button anyway. So it ends on a on a good on a good note. Um, but she told me at the at the end that she felt like she had just learned that Santa Claus wasn't real. 
Right. That's a good way to put it because that, I think for all of us who have gone through a faith crisis and at one point have doubts about the church or perhaps even Christianity at large, uh, it kind of has that feeling of your whole life holding this, this ideal up on a pedestal and the way in which you've constructed that framework to believe those things, when that's no longer there, that all just kind of gets ripped away from you. That, that's a good way to put it. So, you've had this conversation with, with her regarding the, the PBS documentary, so her eyes are kind of at least opened up to the issues, maybe not necessarily what way to see them, but at least be aware of them. How did she handle that? Well, um, she told me that she would have rather have had her simplistic view of Joseph Smith. I think that's what hit her the most was, was Joseph Smith. Uh, you know, he's, he's so, you know, and I, and I hesitate to use this word, but he's so idolized, uh, within our faith and, uh, and placed on a pedestal and even just the depictions of how we paint him as this, this tall, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, and muscular, and athletic, uh, you know, figure that's just full of virtue and nobility, and, and we, you know, we have this idea that, that he was falsely accused of all of his charges, and that he was always a virtuous uh, person who, even as a child, refused alcohol, and he was getting surgery done on his leg, and, you know, we have these, these folklores uh, that we've developed uh, about him, and um, you know, they're, they're not untrue, but they're a very limited perspective of the complexity of who he was as a, as a man and as a human being. And, uh, when you find out that there's a whole different, uh, side, um, and that he was a very controversial, uh, eclectic and charismatic figure, uh, that was, you know, perhaps some of a, of a, of a, schemer in certain areas. Um, well, it, it, it definitely took the breath out of her. Uh, she said, you know, I wish that I would have just been left with my, my simple image of him. I don't like knowing him as a flawed character. Right, right. And you, and you look at, I guess, the scriptures or the church, and you certainly can see how we get this primary view of of Joseph, this simple taught, like you put it, very, very clean cut, very uh upstanding. But at the same time if we if we really take our time and look through uh the Doctrine and Covenants or Joseph Smith's history in his journals, he's constantly having conversations uh with Heavenly Father where he's always being reminded to repent and that some of the things he's doing are not approved and yet for whatever reason as we grow up in the church we don't really get a whole lot of discussion on those do we no it's definitely there i mean a, a good reading of the doctrine and covenants uh tells you very clearly that joseph smith was a flawed man and that he knew it and that he was in a in a constant state of repentance and that he he felt you know at times very unworthy of his mantle and you know so yeah the ideas that we've created are are entirely culturally constructed uh and i think that it speaks to and this is you know again something that i've really learned after i've started getting back into studying history in general is that we have this need to create simple stories and mythologies and we do that not just with uh joseph smith or you know, Brigham Young or any of our 
predominant church leaders, but we also do it with uh, our historical leaders, politicians, and uh, you know Abraham Lincoln, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, uh, George Washington. We create these very simplified mythologies about them of virtue and of these these uh, very unnuanced um, depictions of them, and I and yeah. it's, I think it's a very natural desire to want to depict your heroes and your leaders uh, in as positive uh, light as possible. And it's um, it doesn't feel right to discuss their flaws. Um, but they're there. Every human being is, is, is a complex creature full of, of flaw, and, and nobody escapes that. Um, and so that was, you know, that's something that took me a long time to work through. Uh, and, and the big question is, why, you know, and now, and like I said, now I have an answer, but why can't the church depict a little bit more accurately, uh, you know, uh, his flaws and, and, and things that would prepare you for when you find out it wouldn't, wouldn't it be nice if, um, when you, when you're, you know, 28 years old and you discover that Joseph Smith had a plurality of wives for the first time, <laughs> wouldn't it be nice if you said, oh yeah, I learned that back in seminary. Right. You know, not, yeah, that's a good point. And, and I think this kind of touches too on, the fact that faith crisis really comes from two different directions. One of those is the issues themselves. So when we encounter something troubling in church history or a piece of theology that doesn't quite match up once we've kind of researched it through, the other part of it is why did it take so long for me to, A, get the information, and two, why did I have to search outside of the church to get it? And I think at least for listeners or people who maybe encounter this uh, podcast who um, don't really understand faith crisis, it might be beneficial for them to to know that there are so many different intricacies to it. It's not just as simple as, oh, you've got a question on seer stones? Well, let me answer it for you. It, it sometimes goes more into when you heard it, why you heard it at that point, and why you didn't hear it sooner. Yeah, yeah, no, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. So, you know, moving forward from here, um, you know, I, the majority of my faith crisis that I was going through, I felt fairly alone in it. I didn't feel I could really discuss it, um, either, you know, before going through the PBS documentary with my wife, um, or, uh, in my church environment, in my church setting. You know, one of the things that you had mentioned, uh, to John Dolan in your interview with him was, um, that you would encourage people to seek out somebody in their church, in their ward who, has the ability to give answers to some of these bigger questions. The challenge is, is knowing who that is and knowing how to approach them because you don't just walk up to somebody and say, how much do you know about seer stones? How much do you know about, uh, polyandrous relationships? You know, it's, it's not something you feel comfortable walking up and asking people. So this is where resources really need to come into play and particularly resources, I think, given to, to the bishops to can, you know, then say, well, here's something the church has put together on this. But anyway, um, the resources that I found were not within the ward. And this is, uh, you know, gets into the online, um, forums. Uh, the, I actually started, uh, with Stay LDS, uh, just briefly. I got on there 
landed there as I, it, you know, I think I even remember the Google search terms that I use. I think it was um, disbelieving active Mormons. And uh, I wanted to find, uh, to see if it even existed, to see if there were other people out there like me who attended church regularly, who were fully engaged in the church, but who didn't necessarily believe it. And um, I came across the ALDS. I read through some of the essays. Uh, that was the first time I'd ever heard of John DeLynn's name. And from there, a, uh, there was a link to the New Order Mormon uh, forum. And so I hopped over there. Uh, there wasn't anything particular about choosing that. It just sounded like an interesting name when I scrolled through the list and hopped over there, uh, created a... Uh, a name um, and a hand, you know a, a picture and started introducing myself uh, to the people. And what I found was uh, that I'm far from alone. <laughs> There's a rather large uh, community of people out there who have experienced exactly the same thing that I've experienced. And so, you know, it was a place to anonymously uh, go and voice your problems, your concerns, your outrage at times. Um, I think that there is a certain amount of anger that a, certain, a person has to process through. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times I think we, we try to squelch that anger because we're afraid that that will just lead to uh, further uh, apostasy. But sometimes it's healthy, I think, to work through that, uh, to allow a certain space um, for anger at, at uh feeling um, either disenfranchised or feeling, uh, you know, a, a duplicitous uh, um, approach from the church on things. So it's, you know, it, I think that forums like that, while they can be, they can be full of venom sometimes, and they can be full of um, uh, people who are just getting on there to lambast uh, the church, I think that uh, there's a lot of forums out there that are also pretty supportive and healthy. And, and I think New Order Mormon does a pretty good job of it. It's a fairly heavy, heavily moderated uh, forum, and the, the, I think the primary goal of it is to allow people to work through their, uh, their disaffection without necessarily telling them where to go afterwards. So there isn't a push in there for people to leave the church, and there also isn't a push for people to stay. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's a good point. And you, you talk about how this site essentially allowed you not to, to feel alone. And I think a lot of people that who struggle with these things, like you say, there's not necessarily a go-to person reward that they're aware of. I, I hope as the church moves forward that there are people like you and me who at least say enough to let people know that, that we're kind of aware of these things. So you feel, you feel like you're not alone. You've got this, this support group. Um, at what point does this start to kind of transfer into like a turning around uh, phase of getting things back maybe to, to where you're heading back in your direction? I was invited to become a moderator of the board probably, oh, I guess six or eight months after uh, joining it. Um, I had a, uh, you know built up a reputation at that point of somebody who was still active in the church and who had processed, who was continuing to process through uh, disaffection while while maintaining activity, and I think that the moderators, the other you know moderators on the board were um, uh, that's that's the kind of representation that they wanted uh, within the moderation were, were people who weren't necessarily just telling people to just all leave the church and drones and things like that. Right. So so I was invited to be a moderator, and I became pretty well acquainted with a lot of the people on the board. And then there was one particular individual who came on 
uh, the board who really, um, who really changed, I guess, I guess you can say it was a turning point for me. Uh, and he, uh, he goes by the name George Oliver. And he's been, you know, somewhat well known now in the disaffected circles. He's not a disaffected member himself. Uh, while definitely full of nuance and different perspectives on things which aren't necessarily perspectives you would hear at Sunday school, uh, he is a, um, uh, an avid, uh, and very well researched Freemason. And his studies, he's, he's in a PhD program, which isn't relating to religion, but, uh, his, his personal studies have to do with the connection of Freemasonry and Joseph Smith and Mormonism and the worldview, um, mostly that Joseph Smith, uh, could have likely had that was heavily influenced from, um, his, his father and his older brother's involvement in their local Masonic lodges. What George, uh, Oliver has done is he's um, he's put together the uh, the books that were common in Masonic homes um, and the Masonic lodges. The newspaper that the Masons published once a month that was in pretty much every Masonic family's homes. And looking at the types of articles that are in there and the types of things that are discussed and in uh, most particularly a book which was uh, in the Northeast area uh, was very popular, which was called The Antiquities of Freemasonry. Um, by And this was actually by a, uh, I believe he was an Anglican minister in, uh, in England who published this. And it was during this time when Masonry uh, was going from being mostly a guild movement into more of a fraternal spiritual organization. And this book was published with really the intention of creating a history of masonry that goes all the way back to Abraham and, well, back to Solomon and Abraham and then back to, uh, Noah and Adam and Eve. Um, so he had created this, this grand theological history of how the craft was really synonymous with the priesthood. And, uh, and it was, and it's very interesting to go through that and to see, um, a lot of the theology, uh, that Joseph Smith had and a lot of the perspectives on the world and see how that could have shaped his perspective of the world. Now, George Oliver did this not as a method of deconstructing Joseph Smith and saying that he stole all this stuff and borrowed it all from Masons, but rather the way that I took it in the conversations that he and I had one-on-one was showing how it's perfectly acceptable for Joseph Smith to have... um been influenced by his time and his culture and those things around him, uh, in fact, necessary. And I, I think that that's something that we uh, gloss over in the church, is we assume that all of this stuff was done in a vacuum, and that all of this uh, history that, that we have, that Joseph Smith's revelations, had no precedent, that it was... The first time that God had spoken to man since, you know, since the early days of Peter. And, uh, you know, that Joseph Smith was, was the founder and the pioneer of these thoughts and these ideas. And that's, no, that's that, yeah, that's a good, that's a good idea because along with learning the church through this kind of uh, primary view or this very naive view, we just have this impression that every day Joseph gets up 
he says a prayer, Jesus shows up in the room, and Jesus proceeds to tell Joseph, you know, everything he wants him to do that day. And it doesn't, when we start to really understand that things, that's not really a realistic expectation, and then to, to kind of move on to understanding that when it comes to uh, the temple and the connection between masonry and the temple, the connection between the Word of Wisdom and uh, Emma's expression of dis, uh, disfavor with with what the substances that the other leaders in the church at the time were using, that you're 100% right, that all revelation uh, seems to come to the church as questions are being asked, and questions don't surface unless one is experiencing a a, a dichotomy in their environment that is causing them to, to begin to think about those things. Yeah, and I'll, and I'll even expand that a little bit further. I think that we're, it's, it's, there's more truth to the statement that the Lord stirs the hearts of men, um, you know, than, than we, uh, than we realize. I think that sometimes there's movements within society that the Lord and the Holy Spirit is fostered up and that eventually it even reaches us. <laughs> and, uh, right. sometimes, to be honest, I feel we're the last to know <laughs> some of these things. Not the first, but, uh, and you just mentioned, uh, Emma and her distaste of having to clean the chapel of, you know, of, uh, the Whitney store of tobacco and that that was the impetus for, uh, Joseph Smith praying about the word of wisdom. And, and I'm going to back that, uh, up even one step further and, uh, talk ab- and, and say that there was also influence from the temperance movement that was sweeping through the Northeast at that time, sweeping from, uh, it was very popular in Pennsylvania and New York, and then it swept through Ohio. Sidney Rigdon was a supporter of the temperance movement that was happening, which um, had a ban on uh, alcohol, at least distilled uh, alcohol, fermented alcohol wasn't quite as big of a concern, and uh, gambling and, and swearing and chew, chewing tobacco and things of that nature. Uh, so these were influences that were coming into the church from the outside, uh, Sidney Rigdon influenced Emma as well, and so she uh, had carried that perspective not from her own creation as well. And eventually, right. Joseph starts catching on to this uh, and starts taking it to the Lord in prayer. And I do believe that that's sincere. I don't, I, I don't, uh, you know, I, perhaps at one time I would have said, well, okay, that's just another thing that Joseph Smith copied, you know. But now I, I, I'm at a point where I can comfortably say that I believe that Joseph Smith sincerely prayed about these things and sincerely felt, you know, that he received an answer directly from the Lord uh, that, that gave him this inspiration of the Word of Wisdom. But you'll find things uh, that we don't really talk about anymore in the Word of Wisdom, such as the mild drink made with barley, you know, which which I know now is there, there's no other answer than it was beer, I'm sorry, but it was. Um, and that's... Uh, it, it goes back to the um, the separation between fermented alcohols and distilled alcohols that was popular in the temperance movement. So, right, that's a good point. You know, when you talk about the temperance movement, we we have a tendency as Sunday school teachers in the church, or as leaders giving a lesson, or someone giving a sacrament talk, we want to we want to paint this picture that nobody back in that time knew any of the ill effects of these substances. And that Joseph just kind of strikes lightning in a bottle. Yeah. And we also kind of do the same thing going back to Jesus' time. There's always a discussion from time to time. We just had one recently in our ward where the uh, discussion started talking about Jesus turning water into wine. And a member raised their hand and said that, well, that that's okay because that was just pure grape juice yeah. and uh, and wasn't alcohol at all. 
and I'm always I'm always concerned when we take those approaches because then everybody who's listening gets these these same expectations and, and assumptions set up for the next generation. I don't think we'd do any great service by trying to uh, cr- create these little constructions which support our theology and our view. I think, in fact, um, I think this actually needs to be talked about more in there, and I think it would actually be healthy for people to understand that uh, nothing happens inside of a vacuum. I think that would actually soften the blow for quite a few people when they find, you know, yeah, I agree, I agree completely. That's a good point. Um, so, kind of moving on, you've got this this friend on uh, on New Order Mormon, George Oliver. You're having these discussions. It's beginning to open you up to a new way of seeing things. Where do you go from there? Yeah, so I he really helped me come to terms with the fact that, uh, or the idea that Joseph Smith was working from a place of integrity, that he was... Uh, that even though there's questions about his behavior and certain things, and he was certainly a flawed individual, that there were, that he had, that he was sincere in his seeking for this. This wasn't all big manipulation, that he wasn't just trying to do this for money or for fame or power. Um, maybe he, and, you know, it's arguable whether or not he got caught up in, in his, in his power as he neared the end of his life, but, uh, at least at the onset, I, I don't, uh, I don't believe that he was, just a, a, a schemer and a charlatan. So that was a huge turnaround point for me. It helped me to understand that there can be these these big disparities that don't necessarily disprove things. And and, uh, and really, it helped me appreciate some aspects about Joseph Smith in particular that I really hadn't appreciated before. And that was and that really is reflective of what what I you know term the genius of the church in that. We have this kind of rough and tumble uh, farmer who, and I'm not going to go the traditional route and say that he was highly uneducated and dim-witted. I think that that's doing him a tremendous disservice. I think he was actually a very intelligent and articulate man and very well-versed in things and had tremendous capacity. Um, but that he didn't, he wasn't a theologian. Uh, in in the sense of going off to a seminary college and getting a, uh, a a doctorate in theology and becoming a minister of a church, he was kind of thrown into this scene, and that he emerged with this amazing uh, theology, which borrows a lot of parts of elements that were going on in his time and his day and things around him, but that he was able to synthesize these things into something that has withstood 180 plus years at this point and um, was very um, dynamic for its day that was ex- that, that had some very big ideas behind it, but more so wasn't just what he wrote and the lectures that he put out, but it was the action that really attracted me that I saw as I studied him as a historical figure. And, and this was, uh, you know, reading through Richard Bushman's Rough Stone Rolling and things like that. Uh, Terrell Gibbons, some of his work, um, on the, by, by the Hand of Mormon at this point, I was reading that. And that was, that, that book was very helpful to me, uh, to putting this together in a way of seeing how Joseph Smith and the, and the early saints, they didn't just publish these theological treaties and dissertations. They literally said, okay, we're, 
we know that the city of Enoch is going to be returned to the earth. We believe it's going to be here in, in the American continent. And so we're going to build it. We're actually going to roll up our sleeves. We're going to grab our chisels. We're going to head to the mountains, and we are going to build this thing brick by brick. We're going to build up the city of God, and God will receive his people. They were completely invested into the idea of rebuilding God's city and ushering in the millennium. It was this partnership with God that I saw emerging out of this. It wasn't just us sitting here waiting. And I, and I talk about this a lot, in, even when I'm teaching Sunday school now. It wasn't just us waiting for Jesus to return and make everything right. It was us making everything right so that Jesus could return. Right, being an active participant. Active, and that's the beauty of Mormonism. That's the genius that separates it from a lot of the Christian traditions. Is And, and yes, perhaps... It, you know, it was very much inspired by masonry and the temple, the emphasis on the, on the, the, the temple, the spiritual temple of, you know, the city of Enoch, which was translated into the sky that is very symbolic, richly symbolic within masonry. Perhaps, yes, that is what Joseph Smith latched on to, but he expanded on it. He did something about it and he said, okay, so let's not just talk about a temple, let's build a temple. Right? And he felt inspired to do so. Yeah, good point. And the other thing, too, is kind of looking at um, Joseph and him kind of, his mode of getting the church to uh, to work on things. I, I often think that when we look at all of Christianity and all the different uh, denominations that are out there, it, it seems to me, and I could be wrong because I'm, I'm somewhat limited in my um, understanding of other faiths, but it seems to me that if the goal is to become like Christ, that our church does as good a job as anybody at taking the general membership of the church and giving, if they're willing, giving them opportunities to grow. I, I think it certainly does. And I think that sometimes those opportunities that we have to grow don't come from within the actual sanctioned, um, you know, curriculums or callings within the church, but just by being in the environment of the church and being around people who you might have disagreement with. And that goes back to my uh, the, the Eugene England essay of being in that environment of people who you normally wouldn't choose to associate with. I think that that is part of creating this Zion community, of creating this millennial community. Yeah, excellent. So you're, you're reading books by Terrell Givens, you're reading books by Richard Bushman. Uh, how old are you at this point? I mean, when this all... I am, I guess I'm probably about 36. Okay. And outside of their books, do you know these men uh, outside of that? Are you? I mean, have you heard them talk? Have you been to to functions that they've been at? Have you read other things about them, or or is it just their their published works that you're reading? At this point, just their published works, and and you know, living in Seattle still at this point, so it's fairly removed from uh, from a lot of the lectures and conferences that go on. Um, but the uh, the, my only knowledge of Terrell Givens and Richard Bushman prior to this was just their portions of the interviews on the PBS documentary, uh, The Mormons. And Terrell Givens probably had, you know, the most amount of, of screen time, uh, out of anybody on that documentary. So I was familiar with who he was, uh, from that and knew that he was uh, a very well-spoken, eloquent individual and was interested in what he had to say. And these were, you know, books that were recommended through the New Order Mormon Forum, through George R. Order, things like that. Um, so, yeah, so I started pouring through these and started seeing how um, 
faithful members who have encountered these things were able to process and work through these things. And I think the thing that really struck me the most is rather than these being speculative books about, well, maybe this and maybe that, which I find so often in apologetics, um, what I found was that these were historically just vetted and heavily cited, heavily referenced books. And they weren't trying to necessarily argue a specific point. They were just acknowledging that this is the historical record uh, that we have and still done in a faithful perspective. And it, and it gave me permission, I guess you can say, to accept um, a broader scope of Mormonism, of its history, of its theology, of its characters, uh, and still say that it's possible to see the hand of God um, in this in this yeah. unfolding drama. Yeah. And so you've, you've encountered, of course, New Order Mormon you talked about. You've encountered books by uh, Givens and Bushman, and, and like you say, they do a nice job of essentially laying it all on the table and saying there's no reason why we can't walk away from this still having faith. You Have you encountered other things on the Internet as well at this point? I mean, have you... Have you um, encountered Mormon stories, for instance? Yeah, yeah. Mormon stories um, was definitely referenced quite often in the New Order Mormon forum. So, yeah, I started uh, I started listening to a lot of the interviews that were on there. Um, you know, and I can't say that I've been a, a... I haven't listened to every single episode, and there's certainly plenty that I, you know, didn't really care for, didn't find any sort of connection with, but there was... There was some, you know, the one, the interview with, with Bushman, the interview with Gibbons were two of them that, that attracted to me strongly. And then there was others that, uh, Brent Gardner, for instance, and there was, um, you know, some others that I really felt were, were pretty strong, uh, interviews and different perspectives. And, and so, yeah, that again just opened up more to me. And, uh, and Dialogue, uh, Journal was another thing that I, I went ahead and subscribed to that. And I'd known about Dialogue for, for quite some time. Um, in fact, uh, I'd mentioned that one of Eugene England's daughters was in my ward and when I was in the bishopric in Seattle. And so she had, yeah, she had, she had actually introduced me to dialogue and told, and, and I had no idea who Eugene England was at that point. I had no idea what dialogue was or Sunstone or anything like that. And she had told me about it and, and she, you know, she was a, a pretty avid feminist in, in our ward and I'd always just adored her. I thought she was fantastic. And, and, uh, and so she told me back then, this is in the mid nineties that she'd be happy to give me any, you know, back issues to read because she'd had all of them. Um, if I'd be interested and I wasn't at that point. Um, right. You right. Know, so, and yeah. so you fast forward and you wonder if, if had you taken her up on some of that, whether that maybe would have alleviated some of this along. Yeah. The way. Or maybe it would have sparked a crisis earlier. I don't know. Right. You know, but but it definitely was something that as soon as I started reading through these articles and starting to see some names that that uh, you know start reoccurring within Mormon scholarship, um, you know I, I I started seeing this this thought coming out that uh, you know that I'd always I'd I'd known existed but I'd always been told these are the fringe Mormons these are the liberal Mormons these are the ones that you don't want to associate with. Um, and, and what I ended up finding out was that these Mormons were actually, uh, very intelligent, very well researched, very, uh, you know, impassioned and invested into the church. And they were in no ways trying to challenge it or, 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 you know, cause its annihilation as some people might <laughs> suspect. Um, right. and, and I, and it, and it really intellectually and spiritually spoke to me. Uh, and, and that, uh, leads into the next phase of my life. 
Excellent. So having worked through some of this, beginning to kind of examine, like we talk about your expectations and assumptions, so kind of working out of this phase, uh, where's that brought you to? I moved to Utah, uh, for one. <laughs> um, and it wasn't because of this. It was actually because, you know, my ex-wife had decided to, to that she would like to move back out here to Utah where her family was from and where it was cheaper to find uh, a house to purchase after it took we, we divorced in 2008 and that was the first time to try to sell a house so um, the economy had just crumbled and our 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 house was just the equity had just vanished into nothing overnight so anyway it took two years to finally sell that house 2010 and she uh, moved out here I I had to convince my new wife that we're moving to Utah which um, you know it's it, was not what she was planning on signing up for when we first started dating. I mean, I think, you know, I, I really, I have to, uh, take just a, a moment to really applaud my, my poor dear wife, um, for going through all of this with me. I mean, she, you know, she, she gets, she comes out of inactivity into full activity. Uh, she finds out that I'm questioning my own faith and then, you know, she, then, then all of a sudden I'm telling her we're moving to Utah. So. <laughs> So, so you're throwing a lot out. Yeah, yeah, and you know she's handled it like a champ. She's really a, a very gracious woman, and and <laughs> yeah. So she, um, she did, you know, accept the move out here to Utah. She wouldn't want to separate me from from my son that I share custody of, and knew that it was important uh, to keep us together. And also, there was you know some opportunities out here that we didn't feel that we had in Seattle. Um, it, Seattle's a very expensive city to live in, and so it really required two incomes. Uh, to live and out here uh, in Utah, it's 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 a bit more affordable. Um, so we made the decision that uh, I would go back to school full time, and she would uh, work and put me through school. So once again, another thing I get to throw on her shoulders. Um, but she's been very supportive and gracious of the whole thing. And and so yeah, I'm a full time student uh, at the uh, at Weber State University, and the things that I had read uh, through. Bushman and Gibbons, as well as many other historians and scholars uh, in the church, has inspired and lit a fire in me to study uh, history professionally. Um, so I uh, went back in with the intentions of studying 19th century American religious movements, and uh, I have a minor in English literature and sociology, and it's been fantastic. I'm going into my second year. Uh, of school and, and the academic uh, environment really suits me. Utah has been um, a very uh, interesting place uh, to be, and particularly because there is such a large amount of um, liberal and fringe Mormons out here, and and they really have um, uh, it's 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 just so different in Utah than it is outside. Excellent. So, kind of. Um to move forward from there, in regards to your faith and stuff, where are you at today? Well, I'm fully active. Uh, I hold a temple recommend. I'm, I am in good standing uh, with the church. Um, my children, as they are, you know, have passed the age of baptism, I've baptized them uh, willfully. Uh, confirm them. I, you know, we hold family home evening. We read scriptures as a family. We pray together as a family. So, you know, as far as my um, Activity level, we're, we're about as active as it gets. Um, I've gotten to, I think, a, a point of maturation with 
uh, with my view and my, my questions and things. And I've, I think I've accepted, um, that, uh, it's okay to not have all the answers on things and, and that, uh, there's, um, there's nothing wrong with, with wrestling, I guess, with your faith and, and it's okay to, uh, to remain fully engaged. Uh, you don't have to, uh, you don't have to walk away from, from a faith or a tradition that you hold dearly, um, simply because you have doubts and questions about it. Not everything has been resolved, uh, in my mind. In fact, I, you know, still, um, come across all sorts of, uh, nuances, but now I find them to be more interesting than startling or damaging. Um, so actually, uh, it, it's actually, you know, there were some people when they go through this, this process, they feel that they need to run, uh, away from the church and as fast as possible, write their letter of resignation and just get out of it. Um, and, and in some cases, I guess I can't blame them. Um, there's some people who have felt tremendous harm and damage from the church and I don't, I don't blame them for wanting to step away from it. Uh, I don't blame them for wanting to erase it from their lives. In some cases, I think it's unfortunate uh, that that's happened. And I, and I wish that they didn't have those experiences, uh, which caused them to not feel comfortable uh, in the church. I, I wish that there would be more people who would stick around, uh, it, mostly because I think we need them. Uh, we, we need people who have gone through that experience to, to help others and to say, you know, it's okay. What you're going through right now is, is, is normal. It's a part of, of the progression of faith and of growing up and of seeing the world in different colors as opposed to black and white. And I think, uh, you know, for, for me, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I serve in a calling in church. I teach a 16 to 17 year old Sunday school class. My wife is the young women's president in my ward. Um, and both of us, you know, we, we don't have this secret agenda of trying to influence our kids. We're very respectful, but at the same time, I'm happy to be able to um, talk about some of the things with the children, with the kids that perhaps other Sunday school teachers would have said, well, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Or, you know, we don't really discuss those things. I'm, I'm happy that I've been through some experiences where they can bring up questions honestly and openly. <laughs> Good, good, because that was kind of where I wanted to go next, was to ask you uh, in regards to callings. And then now that you mentioned uh, being a Sunday school teacher, I was going to ask you how you handle these kinds of issues. And so I, I think that's a good approach, is to simply just be open with them. And, and the fact that, you know, people like you are aware of some of these things, if if you can kind of feel the lesson going in that direction or someone raises their hand and has a question, to just approach it as honestly and forthrightly uh, as we yeah, can. and and it's fun because so I the class that I teach we have two teachers and we alternate um, from week to week and and usually we'll sit in on each other's lessons and uh, my teaching companion I can I can sense when he's squirming in his chair a little bit when I'm right. when I'm talking about things and just laying out the the, the historical record on things and and uh, you know one of the things that we haven't discussed yet and I'm sure we're getting there is. Uh, that I am um, currently part-time employed by the LDS Church History Department, uh, and I'm working on some, you know, some some fantastic research down there. But I I come away, it's it's like being a kid in a candy store. I come away every day with primary sources that I've come across, which are just, uh, you know, they're they're so fun to me now. Maybe a couple of years ago they wouldn't have been as fun, but to me it's like, aha, this is another. 
another thing which just rounds out the story of Mormonism and adds more color and diversity to it and shows the, you know, the complexity of, of human nature and things like that. And so I'm happy when I come across that stuff. And, and, uh, you know, this last Sunday we, we discussed, uh, Oh, it was Moroni's chapter 1 through 6, and in chapter, I believe it was 6, uh, they start discussing priesthood ordination. Uh, actually, I think 6 was about the uh, how the church is organized, uh, how their services were conducted, but I think it was maybe 4 where they start talking priesthood ordination. And the question of women in the priesthood came up because this also happened to be the weekend that the large number of women, and it got in all the press and newspapers, decided to wear pants to church. Um, right. in somewhat of a peaceful protest of, of women's equality in the church. And, and so, you know, that news had been on all the local stations out here, and the kids were aware of it, and they asked me about women in the priesthood. And I happened to have some resources, uh, you know, some, some some fantastic quotes from prophets and whatnot on women's access to the priesthood and being able to, to heal through their faith in Christ and, and not through ordination, but, uh, you know, that at one point they were able to anoint and heal members of their family, children, uh, other women, and things like that. And so we had a really healthy, I think, conversation about uh, about this. And uh, some of the, I could see some of the women in, in, in the class there, some of the young women, their eyes were a bit opened up by realizing that their role is you know perhaps a bit larger than what uh, than than what we typically make it to be in 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 our constant discussions of male priesthood um so yeah. i th- i think it was a good healthy thing it ended up on a very positive note again my teaching companion i could see him kind of squirming in his chair sure but hopefully hopefully my you know my students uh as they go forward in life these are the little things that they'll kind of keep in the back of their mind so that when they come across it again in the future, it won't be a challenge. It'll be, oh, yeah, I remember hearing about that. Excellent. And I also want to go back kind of in, in the way you ended that and also go back to what you said earlier and kind of touch on a couple of things. You had mentioned that um, pleading maybe for those who are in the middle of a faith crisis instead of just resigning to... Maybe spend some time, again, I recognize too with you that there are some situations that this may not be the right course of action, but I think for the majority of people to try and fight through it, at least at first, because so many people in faith crisis don't see that it'll ever come to an end. They think they're stuck there forever, and they don't realize there is a beautiful a beautiful side on the other end of the tunnel. Yeah. That we can get it's, through. It's it's a it's the dark night of the soul, right? Is what we is how we discuss it. But a dark night of uh, the soul recognizes that it's a night, and there's a day which follows. Uh, yeah. that and and, oh, and and I think that uh, well, I don't. Know, I'll let you. I'll let you continue from there. Well, I was going to say too, and the other end of that is as well is that. We often feel like, okay, even if I get through this faith crisis, I'm going to find out something else, and it's going to make me struggle. But something you touched on that I also agree with is that it seems like when you really come through this and you you put this major faith crisis behind you, whatever instances come up after that don't seem to have as much shock value or to shake you to your core like they did before. Yeah, 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 and especially, you know, as I've devoted myself to the study of history, what I've discovered is that history is messy. 
uh, very messy, whether it's in our church or whether it's just in the world history. And it, so when you discover these these nuggets and these these things which come up, I guess it's actually to a historian, it's exciting. Uh, you know, it's it's aha, I found something new to add to the story, to the continuing uh, unfolding of this of this this fantastic story of humanity. And awesome. Tell us, um, that kind of goes into this, tell us about your time working at the, uh, the church history department. I've been uh, interning for the past four months. I got uh, um, approved to do an internship. I applied for it, and, and they gave it to me uh, back in September, which was really an honor considering that I was a freshman uh, student, and they typically don't give internships to people who are freshmen. Usually you're in your senior year, uh, maybe working on your senior project. Uh, so for them to, to take me on board was, was, uh, was a real honor, and uh, I was uh, put into the special um, projects department, which uh, in the church history library is on the second floor of the library across the street from the main church office building. And I worked with, um, I've been working with uh, some fantastic gals who are um, women's history uh, experts, and we're talking PhDs and master degrees uh, in history and in rhetoric and English literature. And uh, working alongside of them, doing footnote editing and um, uh, source verification on a publication that's coming out next year. And it's, and it's public knowledge, so I can talk about this. It's called This Labor of Love and Duty, uh, Selected Documents from Latter-day Saint Women's History from 1842 to 1892. And we're really talking about the Relief Society history, uh, strong emphasis on things that the women have been involved in, such as the suffrage movement, uh, some of the campaigning against plural marriage in the early days of early society, which uh, ended up getting it shut down for a number of years, uh, the reinstitution of early society under Eliza Snow, uh, the campaigning uh, for plural marriage, which happened uh, as the United States began to really firm up uh, legislation against uh, plural marriage federally, um, and a lot of the different uh, aspects, uh, right, uh, the, as I left uh, a couple of weeks ago from a winter break, we were researching Zena D.H. Young's plural marriage to Joseph Smith and Joseph uh, F. Smith's uh, collecting of affidavits to, um, you know, to, uh, to show the uh, RLDS church that Joseph Smith was indeed a practitioner of plural marriage and that was part of the doctrine. So, you know, these are, these are, it's wonderful working in this environment. Um, I have learned that the church history department is not our enemy. <laughs> they are very much invested in putting out an accurate and academically verifiable history, historical record of the church. The Joseph Smith Papers Project, um, you know, I'd, I'd been aware of it for quite some time, but I'd never realized what a significant uh, project that is um, of publishing all of the original revelations uh, that Joseph Smith had received and uh, putting them in their historical context and seeing openly that there's differences, edits, revisions that have been done to the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, the, the, even the introduction to the Revelations Volume 1 uh, discusses Joseph Smith's manner of using cedar stones for translation. Um, so the church history department is not trying to hide uh, or brush under the carpet any of these historical challenges that people come across. Um, if it's documentable, if it's verifiable, then the church history department isn't going to isn't going to ignore it. Um, you know, I've also learned that there's a pretty significant difference between the church curriculum department and the church history department. And <laughs> I, I, 
I, I think I, I can speak safely uh, when I say that there's the majority of people that work for the church history department would like there to be a little bit more open communication and um, cross-pollination uh, with the curriculum department. Right, right. Now, you brought up a couple of good things. One is that the church is making a, I think, a, a consolidated effort to try and make uh, resources on the women within the church there their uh, historical contribution more uh, more well known among the general membership that includes the book you were talking about working on as well as the one that I think came out last year that we passed out uh, to all the sisters maybe it was early on this year yeah that that and book and sorry to cut you off but that that, that book was put out by the curriculum department uh, and it's uh, I think daughters in my kingdom um, and you know that that book is is uh, is not quite as favorably viewed within the church history department as as I think it could have been. Um, the uh, the the broad feeling of that book was that they they didn't use as many sources as they should have. That they quote it's basically women quoting brethren and men uh, as opposed to really talking about women's history. So so the impetus actually for this project, which has actually been a decade long project, and uh, Jill uh, Durr is is a renowned scholar on Eliza Snow, and she's really the the senior editor on this project, along with several other people who are um, contributing to it. But really, uh, the impetus for it at this point is to expand on that uh, Daughters of My Kingdom and to to uh, to really celebrate women's history as opposed to celebrating women who celebrated men's history, if that makes sense. Right. And so, there's actually going to be an accompanying website for this labor of love and duty. Uh, as well as the book that's being published to uh, to give people public resources, just like the Joseph Smith Papers has a website um, that's available to the public for any any scholar, any interested person uh, to go in and, and, and learn of these things. Excellent. That ties into the second point, which is, you know, you talk about the history being open. Um, I guess my question for you would be, serving in the uh, family history department, kind of working there, that sounds like it's been an uplifting thing. It's been a benefit to your testimony. It's been extremely validating. Um, you know, I, it's, it's every, like I said, every day I, I'm able to come across things and talk with, with people who work for the LDS church history department who are, you know, there's, there's more concentrated PhDs inside the church history department, history PhDs, than there is on most college campuses. Um, there's a lot of dissertations that have been written about various aspects of Mormonism, and uh, you know it's 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 fantastic to be able to go into an office of of somebody and say so. Let's you know tell me what the what the deal is on on section eighty nine of the Ruralism. Tell me about about you know what the deal is about section one thirty two and when it was published, and actually seeing the original source of when. Section 132 was published about about plural marriage, and seeing that it was Brigham Young who brought that out a good seven eight years after uh, Joseph Smith reportedly received the revelation. Um, so yeah, there's it's it's extremely validating to go in there and to not feel crazy, you know, and to uh, to have good, strong, very well educated faithful members say, yeah, that's absolutely the correct history, and it's absolutely documentable. Um, you know, but yet knowing that that doesn't sway them from wanting to, you know, maintain their membership and their fellowship in the church. Right, and it kind of flies in the face of what some of the critics say, which is that uh, if they were allowed to see the original documents and be able to be around 
uh, all of this this historical information that it would actually cause members of the church to lose their faith. But it seems like it, it it's actually the opposite, that being around these original sources and working with those who are aware of all these things is actually an uplifting uh, contribution to Yeah, and I think that it, it depends on the, the maturity level of the person. Uh, you know, it, it's I was immature in my faith when I went through my crisis. There's no question about it. And so learning that things aren't necessarily the way that I thought that they were was a real damaging moment for me, having very little preparation for that. And so I think that it depends... You had mentioned it depends on your circumstances. It depends on your frame of mind as to how you're going to receive these things. Um, you know, these people who are very well studied in the church have spent decade, you know, if not longer in, in researching and in, in, in combing through and, and so they're able to process these things at a much slower and much more, uh, deliberate way than somebody who gets bombarded with a huge amount of highly edited and filtered information on the internet that says, you know, these are the damaging things, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, um, without further exploration into them. And I'm not saying that that further exploration brings about uh, any sort of um, resolution for it. It's, you know, some of those questions are still questions. Um, but what it does is it allows you to realize that these are not new items by any stretch. Nobody's come up with anything that's, that's fantastically new or completely altering of, of, of the church or damaging of the church. Everything is, has, well, you know, one of the things that I've learned through working at the church history library is what a large collection of stuff has been published about this. And it's almost comes to the point where it's like, well, how could you have not known about this? I mean, there's been books published by Deseret Books for decades that are very open about the history. Um, you know, one of the books that I, I spend a lot of time in is Who's Who in the Doctrine and Covenants. And there's another book, uh, it's a chronological history of the Doctrine and Covenants. And, and both of those openly discuss things like plural marriage and, and some of the controversial aspects. And these were Deseret Book publications in the early 80s. So it's not like these things have been hidden. They just haven't been accessible to the mainstream. And I think that that's where the main problem that I see in the church isn't so much that it's trying to hide its history. It's that it's only, uh, it's, its history has only been really revealed to those who have to really actively seek and don't, most people don't know where to go for that. The curriculum department, I think, uh, has, um, been the, the the predominant information that the majority of members have about the church and its history. They've provided the uh, the material that most people go by, and it's a very um, narrowly defined uh, uh, history that they promote. And and I'm not bashing them because now and, and and here's where I'll talk about this a little bit. Now I understand the what the purpose of Sunday school is, what the purpose of the church environment is, is not a historical lecture. It's not a theological debate. It's, it's, it's a place where you learn about the principles of the church, the principles of the gospel, and how to apply those in your life to draw you closer to Christ and how to be a better neighbor. Uh, you know, how to be more loving and more serving towards those around you. You don't get to that point of that, uh, devotional, uh, conversation 
by bringing up historical nuance and by bringing up controversial topics. I do think that there's a lot more that we could discuss, and I think that sometimes we assume that our members can't handle it. We, 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 we teach to the least common denominator. Uh, and I think we could raise the conversation up. We could elevate the conversation up. And I know firsthand from the conversations I've had inside of the church history department that they're very aware of this, that the curriculum department is open to new ways to teaching, for instance, the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, this is this is something which, which has been a bit of a rub uh, to realize is that the Doctrine and Covenants that we're going to be going through next year only really discusses about 20 sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. The rest of it is all scripture chains that wander off into different uh, different places, and it's predominantly topically based, as opposed to chronologically based. So, and I think I can share this, and I, I hope I can share this. The Church History Department is, I, let's say, 96% of the way there on, at the beginning of the year, publishing a website on a chronological study of the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, so, and the church history department has discussed with the curriculum department what they could do to revise the curriculum to being a little bit more of a historical study when they're in the Doctrine and Covenants portion um, every four years. And they're open to it. Apost apostles are open to it. Um, you know, Marlon K. Jensen came on board as the church historian, and he's done wonders to open these things up and open up channels and bring on board well-vetted uh, scholars and and people like Richard Bushman consult with the Church History Department on a number of projects. Terrell Givens consults with the Church History Department. Uh, very well-researched people uh, who who have a lot of have a high reputation in the field. And uh, Elder Snow, who's now the Church Historian, is in the exact same uh, mindset as as Elder Jensen was, and he has the ears of the apostles. They're aware of this. They're aware of the need for more uh, open communication. The question is, is how much, how soon? Right, and, I, and I've had some of those kinds of conversations as well uh, with some of the leaders in the church, and, and so to kind of second that motion for those maybe who are listening, who are struggling, to realize that, you know, this is a giant church, and so things don't necessarily come as fast as maybe we want on an individual scale, but that, that good things, productive things, and helping us to deal with some of these issues are coming down Absolutely. the pipe. Absolutely. Hey, Brian, would you mind sharing this kind of, to just finish off, a couple of things on your point of view that uh, you see as productive uh, for this conversation? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the... The most important thing I think is is for people to understand that struggling with their faith doesn't make them a fence sitter, and and that's something that I think a lot of people get accused from, accused of from their families. Uh, you know, I would say more so from their families than they do that even their church leadership. I don't know a lot of ecclesiastical leadership who are going to come down and condemn somebody for having struggles with their faith. They might not have an answer for them. They might say, "Well, you just need to you know read your scriptures and pray more and gain a, a better testimony of this." But um, I, I think that where the real challenge comes in is with family members and spouses who are who who are afraid that their children or their spouse are being led away by Satan, uh, who are apostatizing and 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 you know like I said they they'll accuse them of being a fencer and that God will spew them out of, their, out of his mouth and and I think that that's just the wrong perspective to have uh, on this. I, I in fact I would argue just the opposite. I, I don't think that going through a struggle of faith is a product of of fence sitting which which I I would say is is apathy. 
I don't think that struggling with your faith is, a, is born out of uh, apathy uh, at all. I believe that it's born out of a place of passion. Uh, for most people that I've met, that I've fellowshiped with, that are disaffected members, that they cared deeply about their faith, and in fact sometimes cared too much about uh, about their faith to where they uh, these things hit them very hard uh, when when they discover these things, and they have, it's created a real hurdle for them to get over, but not because they don't care. And so I think we need to be careful when we label people, when we label people who are inactive or who are uh, you know, disaffected members. I think that we need to not immediately run to the cards of, well, they're sinners or they're lazy or they just, you know, they, they, they just don't care. Um, I, I think that those are, those do an injustice to those people. And I think that we need to realize that there are real issues that people do struggle with, that these are, that these are shocking issues that people find out about when they, uh, when they come across them, and it really is a challenge to their faith, and it's understandable that it's a challenge to their faith because it hasn't been part of the narrative that, that, that we've grown up with. Struggle is part of the journey of faith, and that's something that, that we need to embrace more, I think, within, within the LDS faith. Um, we have this, this overall tone of, of kind of pretending that we've already arrived at a perfect knowledge of things. And we see that in, in our sacrament meetings. We see that in our fasting testimony meetings. Everybody standing up there and saying, I know without a shadow of a doubt. I know with every fiber of my being. That's one of my favorite ones. I know that this is true. I know that Joseph Smith is a prophet. I know that the Book of Mormon is true scripture. We have this, and it's, and it's a reaffirmation that humans tend to need. Um, and it's, it's reconfirming to themselves more than it is anything else. But it sets up this cultural expectation that you can't question, that you can't have any sort of, um, you, you can't deviate from the church or else you're a heretic, you're a hypocrite. And I think that that's an unhealthy perspective to have on the part of faith that is the struggle through journey. And one of the allegories that I really used often for this is the allegory of J- Jacob wrestling with the angel in the Old Testament. This is a very powerful picture to me, and I, I love looking at it as an artistic picture as well as the meaning and symbolism behind it, but they wrestle through this long, dark night, which, which I'll equate to the dark night of the soul that Mother Teresa talked about, who incidentally questioned her own faith at moments. Um, but in the morning after this long, arduous wrestle that Jacob has with this angel, in the morning when the light comes back out, the angel stops wrestling with, with Jacob and he renames him. And he renames him Israel, which is significant. Israel, uh, in Hebrew, literally means he who wrestles with God. He who contends with, with God. And, uh, I, I believe that that is something that we need to take into heart. And I think that, that's, uh, the Jewish tradition does a very good job of this, of this, this lamenting of the soul, this sometimes righteous anger, uh, you know, at, at our relationship with our father, but you're not always happy with your dad. You know, he, there's, there's moments when you're at odds and you clash with him and it's okay as part of the process of growing up, of maturing, of finding out your own identity. Um, 
the, the angel literally said to Jacob, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. That is the process of a faith crisis. It's struggling with God and struggling with men and overcoming to come out into the light the next, the next day. And perhaps Israel isn't so much a destination or a location. Perhaps it isn't so much a people. Perhaps it's a journey and it's a struggle. Um, I've come to the, to the point where I'm okay with wrestling with my faith. I'm okay with wrestling with that angel. I've come to a point where uh, I've recognized that doubts, questions, unresolved issues are part of the process of becoming a humbled servant of Christ. Uh, I'm reading uh, The God Who Weeps right now by Terrell and Fiona Gibbons, and I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of areas in there that speak very profoundly to me, and I recommend that book uh, to anybody who feels like they're starting to come out of that dark phase in their life. I don't think it's something that will turn people around necessarily when they're encountering a faith crisis, but when they're at that point at the end of it and feeling like there's light at the end of the tunnel, I think it's a very good book to pick up and read um, about the richness of our tradition and our, and our beliefs. One of the areas that I, that I probably disagree with uh, the Gibbons in it is the idea that, that you can choose to believe. I, I, I'm not uh, ready to just say that you can choose to believe something when you feel that there's evidence against it. That's a very, I, I believe that that can be a process of self-deception. Um, but I do believe that you can choose to engage and you can choose to say, I'm going to work, you know, I'm going to continue through this, uh, even if I don't have the answers, even if I can't stand up and bear testimony and say, I know for certain, uh, that these things are true, that I'm not going to leave my traditions. I'm not going to leave the faith community that I enjoy, but I'm going to know and feel comfortable with the idea that it's okay to, um, to live in, in a certain amount of uncertainty. And, uh, I think that our church culture as a whole could benefit from having a less dogmatic expectation of people to be perfect in their knowledge and their faith. Awesome. Well, thank you, Brian Whitney. I, uh, I appreciate having you on. I, I just grateful to have you on as a guest on Mormon Discussion. I think you shared a beautiful way of seeing the faith journey and recognizing that it is a journey. And I also think you help those who have listened today to, to understand that this crisis, for those who have it and those who are viewing others who are struggling, that it doesn't define them. And so thank you so You're much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. This concludes part two of my interview with Brian Whitney, the one of the moderators at the website of New Order Mormons, and also who uh, a gentleman who currently is uh, serving an internship with the Church Historical Department. Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, this interview with him. I hope you uh, got something out of it. I'm grateful that uh, Brian took some time to sit down with us and to, to have this interview. I would uh, would hope that uh, in some way it blessed you to better understand each of our journeys in, in trying to increase our faith. May the Lord warm your shoulders. May you have an awesome day, and God bless.
Thank you.